Hello, I'm Mark Tucker. Hey there, I'm Alan Furstenberg. We are Two Voice Devs. Two Voice Devs. Hello, Alan. Hey, Mark. What's doing? Oh, just <laughs> delving into other things, uh, you know, voice experimentations. I don't know. It's just it's been fun. I've been pushing kind of my own ideas of, of how a voice CMS could go. Uh, plus, I've got all these other things I'm doing on projects. And, and you mean that actual stuff. work stuff? That actual work <laughs> stuff, um, which it has to do with voice too. So I, I really enjoy that. Um, but I'm interested in what, what you've been doing uh, more recently on, on multivocal. Yeah, well, you know, we've, we've been teasing it the past few episodes that I've been working on uh, some updates for multivocal and playing around with the CMS kind of oriented around multivocal. And when we chatted a few weeks back on our marathon session, there was a lot that we talked about multivocal, um, all of which I cut out because I thought I was kind of rambling and I wanted to, to get my thoughts together a little bit better. Um, and this also is really, really opportune time for me to do so since multivocal is celebrating four years since its first release. Wow, so it's, congratulations. Its 0.6 release was, was just over by a few days, four years ago. Um, and we're, we're getting really close to a 1.0 release, I think. So I'm, I'm excited about that. I'm excited about uh, playing with and seeing where the CMS is going and talking with people about kind of some ideas and how they've shaped things and seeing what you've been doing um, taking some of the ideas and, and putting it into your CMS. So, um, so kind of let, let's, uh, let's look at some slides that I have that I think will explain what multivocal is and multivocal CMS and kind of give you some, an overview of some of these concepts. Well, I'm looking forward to that because I know we've talked about like kind of the concept or the problem that multivocal solves and I've peeked out a little bit of code and I know that you've been working to make it uh, more cross-platform but uh, I'm sure I'll learn a few things here. Okay, so what we're looking at here is kind of an overview of, um, of where I see multivocal fitting in and the multivocal CNS. So a while back, we talked about the various different roles that we have in when it comes to building voice apps. Um, and we focused a lot on developers and designers and testers and management and you know, all of these different roles, including the content creators. And it kind of occurred to me, a lot of the, the things that are out there right now are either focusing on designers or the designer developer overlap. So Jovo, for example, would be you know, pretty much focused on the developer side of things with, with a little bit of overlap into designers. Yeah. And things like VoiceFlow focus very heavily on the designer side of things. Things like Lexamec, one of the, the, the voice CMSs that we've, we've seen, focus very much just on the content creator part of it without really tying in too much to the other two halves. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the, I thought that was kind of interesting. Um, in working on multivocal, multivocal, for starters, to be clear, it's totally in the developer side. It's a JavaScript library. Um, and it's got almost no overlap with anybody else. It was made for developers, but it my my vision of it had you know pulling where others would would latch into it, where others would hook in, and I feel like that's where multivocal CMS is ending up as is kind of that 
that intersection of all, you know, of these three major, um, major roles. Okay. So it's got a place where developers and designers meet uh, and it has roles for each of them. And then very much it opens up things to the content creators to be able to do a number of things in there that they wouldn't really be able to do otherwise. Okay. So, so multivocal, very much for developers. And I'm going to be talking a lot about multivocal in this part. It's got a lot of technical elements to it. But a lot of those technical elements, I kind of try to sweep under the rug mm-hmm. in the CMS side of it. And where I don't, and I don't everywhere, but where I don't, those are places that I think it needs more work. Okay, fair enough. So let's kind of look at what, what multivocal as a whole kind of looks like. Um, and it's really this library that sits as your webhook. It does a huge amount of lifting as the webhook. And I kind of break it up into five different pieces, three of which I kind of group under processing. So we think of it, you know, you have your, your assistant service out there. That's Alexa. That's Google Assistant. It calls out to a webhook and that runs your webhook that's using multivocal. Okay. And that request, the JSON request, we've talked about it a hundred times gets handled by the pre-process stage, which does some stuff and hands things off to a builder stage, hands things off to a handler stage, hands things off to respond. The response stage then formats it for the particular service again, sends it back, but also hands data off to a post-processing stage. So there's stuff that can be done kind of after the response itself, or at least not directly related to the response part. Okay. But again, all of this is in a webhook. Okay. So uh, just, I guess, said it a little bit different way. There's platform um, specific um, request JSON and platform specific response JSON. So one specifically to Alexa, one to Google, uh, you know, actions builder, one specifically to dialogue flow. Um, something happens in the process to put it into a format that that may not necessarily be platform agnostic, but it's going to be able to handle, uh, deal with it in, in more of a general way, as opposed to the code and the handlers and stuff being specifically for Alexa or specifically for a platform, right? Exactly. Okay. And while there are, there are certainly ways that you can determine what platform you're on, just like in Jovo, you know what platform you're building for, for the most part, you're trying to do things generically and let multivocal take care of some of those platform differences. Okay. So let's kind of look at what each of those steps are, because this is really where I think the, the magic of multivocal ends up being in a lot of ways. And the biggest element of that is the environment. And Jovo has a similar concept. It's basically where all the data gets stored. Yeah, I've, I've, I've called it the environment, the context. I think I'm kind of settling right now on the data context, um, but yeah. Yeah, no, that, that makes sense as a name. I, I try to avoid using the word context simply because it's got other overloaded yeah. meetings. Yep. One of the crucial things is that almost everything that happens in multivocal works through the environment. Okay. It's like the, the, the cornerstone of everything that happens here. 
and that's kind of typified in, in the first phase in pre-processing. And again, remember, uh, this is where we're going to get our request from the platform, but it's also where we do things like loading the configuration. And the configuration is the other big essential element of multivocal. Yes. Because that literally controls almost everything else that happens is done through the configuration. Um, and then it does some other initial tasks to kind of make sure that we should proceed any further. So for example, it will validate the request. You know, we, we talked a, a couple of episodes ago briefly, and it's something we need to ret return to that uh, we wanna make sure that this request is actually coming from Alexa or Google Assistant and not somebody trying to spoof us. Right. Um, so there are various ways that we can validate that request that's handled in pre-processing. And if validation fails, we bail out quickly because okay. we don't want to spend time running stuff that we don't need to. Uh, similarly, Google periodically sends a, a health check ping. Mm -hmm. And rather than going through the full processing task, we detect if it's a health check ping and just reply back saying, yeah, we're alive in a valid way. Okay. So handle stuff that needs to be handled upfront before we go doing the, the work. And again, the two big parts are loading the configuration. So the configuration gets loaded into the config value in the environment. And our request from the platform gets loaded into the environment as well. So we just load the entire body, which is JSON into the environment. All of the headers get loaded into the environment. And we do a little bit of early analysis. So we try to figure out what platform this is based on various fields in the body, which we now have in the environment. All right, that makes sense. So off the top, you know, we know is this Alexa, is this Google, is this Dialogflow, is this, you know, what platform are we on? What version of the platform if we can? What other things do we know about it? All right, makes sense. And then we move what, what I refer to as the, the builder. And the builder kind of takes that, that, that first notion of let's load some values into the environment based on what we know so far and greatly expands on it. Right. So this, way, this is where, for example, we'll determine if we can what our host name is. And we need to know the host name in some cases if we're going to be loading resources from the exact same place or maybe determining, you know, where, uh, basically it's, it's a good reference to have. What locale has been sent along? So if this is English in the US or English in the UK or French or whatever, that gets loaded in. Right. Um, any parameters or slots that are provided, those get set up. If we can identify the user, either because they've logged in or we have this voice profile or whatever, whatever information we have about the user already, that will get loaded in. Any existing context information, you know, any session state, any of those sorts of things, that will get built at this point. It will then determine what intent triggered this. And again, that's pretty easy. That's just a field somewhere in that JSON that we get. Right. And then for some platforms, i.e. Google, it determines what I refer to as an action. And I call it an action because that's what Dialogflow called it initially. 
but actions are just, you can think of them as collections of intents. Under Action Builder, it uses the term handler name. And I would have loved to use the term handler name, but I had that reserved for something else already. So this is where it, it builds up these two values. And these two values are really important when it comes to the next stage. But one of the other kind of important part here is that it, it can also call your builders. So you can have chunks of code that read various fields from the body or various fields from the session or the user or parameters or whatever else has been set so far in the environment and set other values in the environment. And when we were talking about the work you were doing in Jovo, you were talking about a data transformer, for example. Yeah. And this kind of fills a similar role. So you could say, get uh, this field from you know five nests in and store it here in the environment instead under an easier to use name. Or, okay. you know, if I want to, and I'll, I'll show this in my illustration later, if I'm dealing with the color, I could get that color information either because uh, the user just told me, so it shows up in a parameter, or they told me earlier in the session, so it shows up in the session context, or they told me in a previous conversation, so it's in the user context. Mm -hmm. And which of those do I prioritize? If the user has not given me a color, how do I handle it? So I can set a single value, pulling it from a bunch of different possible locations. So builders are all about augmenting the environment with additional values. Yes. Now, would you make any API calls to get those values or, or should API calls be handled in the next stage, the handlers? In general, you'll do that in the handlers because all of your builders are called every time. While handlers are only called under, you, you set specific, re specific um, occasions when a handler will be called, okay. but every builder is called every time. So they're kind of meant to be more lightweight. There's nothing that stops you from making an API call. And, you know, if, for example, you have user information that's stored in a database that you need to get out, you would certainly do so here because you need that every time. Or you might, as part of it, say, well, if I don't have that information for this user, let me make the API call and save it in some place that I know will be in the session. Okay. So I know that it will be available in the future. That no. might be appropriate to do in a builder. Yeah, because I'm wondering, I'm thinking in specifically the case on Alexa, where sometimes they pass you information as part of the request, but sometimes you have to um, make an additional API call to an Alexa API to get some additional information. And um, it seems like you'd want to do that and put it and store it someplace because you'd, you want that, that information there to be part of the environment for the future. Um, so there might be cases where, and, and maybe you'd have to do something like check a, a flag or something so that you don't actually run it every time, but, or right. But. No. And, and it basically it kind of boils down to if this is, um, if this is data that you kind of expect to be there all the time, no matter what else you may be doing, a builder is usually a good candidate for, for doing that. Okay. 
you don't you don't have like the concept of like a session start builder. So builders that only happen when the session first starts or anything. No. Okay. It might that might be an interesting concept. Okay. Uh, it's certainly not a bad idea, but I think those things are also equally well dealt with in a handler. Okay. And I'm I'll, not I'll sure, reserve, yeah, until you tell me more about handlers. Yeah. I'm not sure there's a reason not to do it in one versus the other. And, and in some ways, this division is kind of arbitrary, but I'll explain where why you'll see why there's this division in a moment, I think. Okay, um, fair enough. The other thing I kind of want to point out, though, is that a lot of these values, you know, where we get, for example, the locale, that's, that's a, a set of fields in our configuration. So really all multivocal does is it consults the configuration, says, where shall I look for a locale? Looks at that list, goes through the list one by one until it finds a valid value, breaks it up into the language part and the rest of the locale and saves that. If you wanted to, you could change any of these settings. So for example, one thing that, that Andy has kind of talked about in the past is having something that replies to you in a language that's different than the locale that okay. gets sent by the device. You know, I want to speak to it in English, but since I want to practice my French, I want it to talk back to me in French. So what I could do is write something that says, speak to me in French, changes my preferred response locale. So now when I go looking for locale, I would see that the first item on that list should be get it out of my user profile and use that instead of any of the other options. Okay. So almost everything in there, totally configurable. If I want, and, and in fact, one of the things that I wrestled with when I started building the Alexa support for multivocal is Alexa doesn't have this notion of an action. And I, you know, I wrestled with how do I build it? And the solution I came up with was, well, okay, you can set a configuration that will map intents to actions. And I just add looking that up now to this list of where it looks for an action. It was about five lines of change. Mm -hmm. And I now introduced a feature that Alexa doesn't have. Yeah. So I, I was I was kind Pretty of pleased cool. with how that worked out. So really, one of you know, it's it's really uh, the the configuration is really, really powerful. I hope. Hope it's powerful enough. <laughs> well, it sounds like it because it sounds like that's a series of rules that are fallbacks and, and you've prioritized rules and you'll go through and you'll until you find one that yep. matches. And if not, there's there's probably some default case. There's a there is a there is a default case. And if that default case fails, even there is, you know, you can set what a default value is. Okay. So in the case of locale, for example. If for whatever reason it can't find it anywhere, it uses a value of undefined, which doesn't help a lot, but it makes sense in some ways. Yeah. So that's the builder. And if you think of the builder pretty much as, you know, populating the environment with almost everything you care about, it makes sense, but almost being the operative word, because there's still a little bit that you don't have at this stage. And that's what the handler deals with. Okay. So the handler is kind of where the business logic ends up being. It's, it's most of your custom stuff. And that happens first. 
And it picks that based on, you, you will register a handler against either an intent or an action. Okay. So the system then says, okay, do I have a handler registered for the intent or action that's currently being worked on? And if it does, it calls that handler. And if not, it calls a default handler. And the handler is responsible for doing a bunch of things. You know, mostly it's responsible for the business logic. This is where you'll make the API calls. This mm -hmm. is where you'll take a bunch of the values that have been set in the environment so far and apply some logic to them to come up with result values. One of the things you also can do is set what I refer to as the outtent. And we've talked about this a little bit. I love the outtent. I, I still, it, it's one of the more brilliant ideas, I think. Um, and that's basically saying, look, normally we, we make some decisions based on the intent and the action, but sometimes we want to make a decision based on some other things. So I may set another value that's treated similar to an intent and an action, but a little different. Yeah, and um, it's, kind of, it's kind of nuanced because you typically think of like, well, when I'm in this intent, then I, I handle stuff and then... Here is the output for that handler. And if I'm in this handler, then I do, here's the output that matches that handler. Whereas what happens is the outtent gives you a breaking point where you can then, like a designer can just really focus on and like, I need a message for when somebody's coming in for the first time, a welcome message. Right. I need, I need, I need a response when somebody's doing welcome back. When so, you actually start thinking in discrete units of like what do, what are the the different outputs, and this would show up in like what would be the conversation flow, like what would be the the, the little script that you write. There's different cases where I need this, I need that. And, it, and you don't necessarily care about how the logic happened to get to that. I just want, in this case, I just want to list a product. Right. You know, you'll, you'll be saying sometimes, you know, there are times when I will want to list these things and other times when I want to react this way instead. Mm -hmm. And you can argue which time should be which and how you break yeah. that down. Um, but you can argue about that later while the conversation designer focuses on what you're trying to say and under, you know, under what conditions you'll do each one and then narrow that out. So yeah, the outtent is that kind of a break. There's also levels which are implement that kind of a break as well. Yep. Outtents um, paired with levels are, right. are, is a powerful concept. And I'll show that in a, in a minute as well, kind of how we, we get to that point. Okay. What the default handler does. And in most cases, the handler itself, um, should eventually call the default handler to do some of this work is again, given everything that's been built, given our intent, our action, our outtent, all of our values, the level that gets computed, let's pick a response and maybe pick a suffix. And I, I break those down into two different things intentionally and then format those against a template. So the, the response and the suffix are templates fill those in with all the values from the environment. Um, those templates and the response may indicate we should save certain things into a context. It means we may need to increment some counters which are automatically done for us. But now that we've got these values, we formatted it, that again, all gets saved in the environment again. 
<laughs> to be forwarded to the next step. So it's also it's also the handler that would make an API call. Like if I wanted to get a list of products, I could store them that list of products in the environment. Yes. And again, the handler has, you know, everything along the way has full access to the environment to save whatever you want there. But yeah, it would be in the handler is the most common place to make API calls to save values because, and again, the reason why you put the API calls here rather than in the builder phase is because normally you're doing something here based on a specific action. And the so, builder helps you figure out which handler gets called. Exactly. Or the builder, or the builder phase. Does. Yeah. Um, while the handler, you know, normally you're only going to be making an API call to get a list of products in the one where you're asking for the list of products. Yep. You're not, you don't want to do it on the welcome one. Maybe you do, but usually not. Yeah. You need to narrow it down first. So the builder helps you figure out which handler gets called. And the handler, because of its ability to influence the out tent, um, helps you figure out which template to select for the response. And then build that template. Gotcha. And then forwards everything onto the response section. Okay. And it's responsible for formatting to, for, for the specific platform, which means it also needs to build things like uh, the session value, the session environment. Yeah because that gets sent back um, and it builds something and puts it in the environment again <laughs> called send. And then that gets fed into a different formatter that does the specific formatting for each platform. So and when you're, when you're adding, adding, sorry, I keep interrupting you. No, I'm no, excited. no, 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 it's fine. So when you're adding, uh, when you're adding a new platform to this, then you need some sort of like a, a parser or you know, selector, some, something, some, something that transforms the request in the pre-process section. And then there's the, the formatter that uh, changes it back into the response format platform sort specific. Of. I handle the two a little bit differently. Okay. Right now in the pre-processor, remember how I said we talked about this list of places to look for values? Yeah. It's a list of places to look for values. So it knows, you know, it has a list of, you know, um, it's really just a list of, look, when you're looking for the list of parameters, look here. And if you don't see it here, then look here. If you don't see it there, then look here and keep going down the list until you get it. And that just happens to correspond to each of the different platforms. Okay. So there, there's no place that says, if you are action on Google, then look here. If you are dialogue flow, look here. If you are this other thing, look here. It's just a look here, then here, then here, then here, then here. So it's a stack of configuration rules that some of the rules apply to specific platforms. Yeah, and those that don't just get skipped. They don't mean anything. Gotcha. Whereas on the response, it looks at what your platform is and picks an appropriate template to send the response back for. All right, I think that makes sense. It, it does seem a little bit odd, you know, but that it's it's it, you know that that it, it's handled in two different ways, but it works at least for now. Okay. And then there's this post-process phase which I have there, which takes the environment and lets you do kind of whatever you want with it. This is meant for things like logging and timing analysis. So along the way, part of the environment is also collecting timing information, how long we spent in each phase. Okay. So that can get logged. 
and you know i can log which response i'm sending out and you know bunches of other information um and i have this after the response is sent to the platform because it can take time and on firebase cloud functions it will continue to run after the response is sent back so i get the response back as quickly as possible and then i can spend a few more milliseconds saving the log yeah and if the log receiver is slow that day it doesn't penalize my visitor makes sense um, but that is that is very much based on how or where you host multivocal because it, yeah yeah this was that was something that i learned after the fact that you know so i i need to adjust a little bit about how the post processor runs on different platforms yeah so that's that's the i'd say that's the big that's the huge picture at what multivocal does and how it does it all right i focused a lot on the configuration because it's so big i i i kind of want to touch on where that configuration comes from and what i mean when i say configuration okay multivocal is expecting a json configuration the environment is a java object so it's expecting to get a java object in some way and store it in as the configuration okay there are a bunch of built-in configuration readers and the two most notable ones that i kind of want to touch on are one that loads in a json file and really you can load in multiple json files or json configurations so if i've got uh if i've broken it up into different components i might have a configuration file just dedicated for the part that's talking about color handling well i might have another file separately that talks about my welcome messages and you know quit messages and those sorts of things it loads them in and it merges them in a same fashion similarly it also can listen to a firestore database and this is one of the things i find really cool about firestore is that it does end up listening to the firestore database so it initially when it starts running it gets the the snapshot from firestore but if there are updates firestore sends a, a triggering event and multivocal just reloads it so it doesn't need to it doesn't on every call go out and get the uh, the configuration every time it keeps a copy in memory it keeps updating it as necessary and that's a lot faster yeah when you're starting up also what's great about this is i can set up a bunch of configurations locally as defaults and then later say oh no i need to change some of these values change that in the database okay. and it overrides the the setting that got loaded in yeah i think that's pretty cool <laughs> this is it is really cool and i've taken advantage of this in a bunch of times when you know google has has sent to me whatever is being taken down because this response is not considered acceptable okay so i go in and i change the configuration on that response and it's live it's done yeah um and this is kind of the beauty of where the cms now fits into it because the cms is a web app it's just a web app there is no server component to it except for the firestore database ah so so it's an admin ui on top of firestore it's yes well it's an admin ui on top of a particular part of firestore it's not even all of firestore 
Okay. Because Firestore lets you set permissions on different parts of the database. So kind of the, the, the ultimate goal picture here will be that the CMS will only have perspectives into the, the Firestore database that you're permitted to. And you'll be able to work on your, your version. And maybe there's a workflow that moves that version into production. But you can work on your version as much as you want. And its changes get reflected live on your version of the app. Interesting. So could you also then division things out and say, these are values or parts of the configuration that deal more with designers so they get access and content creators maybe are more concerned about just updating content or translating values. And so they get access to a different portion potentially. Theoretically, yes. And the way I might set that up is that, you know, it means you're making either you're making a couple of different versions of the CMS or you have modified the CMS to only show particular parts to particular people, both of which are theoretically possible, but not there yet. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Um, You know, it's, it's one of those great idea and I love it, but you know, the code isn't in place to do that yet. Code isn't in place to do a lot of things yet. But that's kind of the goal is that at some point a developer, you know, in the same way that a developer would make a WordPress site and may make certain pages available for certain people to to edit. Right. Or to add new content to in just this area. And this other area, other people have access to and, you know, make the the page that you're using to edit it tailored for you. That's kind of the goal where multivocal CMS is going as well. And yes, in that case, what you would have is you could have different configuration files that get saved and the webhook port is just set up to say, read these three configuration files from Firestore. Okay. And because that's perfectly valid. Multivocal can take an unlimited number of configuration files to read in as long as it knows what order to apply them in. Right. Because I'm sure it takes one, and then if the second one has a a field or a path in common, then it's going to overwrite the first one. Is that kind of how it works? It is a little bit more nuanced than that. Right. It's it's not a pure object overlay. It's more of an object merge. If you're thinking about it in terms of um, uh, JavaScript has a, a function called object assign. Yeah which does a shallow assignment. I'm using something that does a deep assignment. Okay, that that clears it up for me. So yeah, in theory, multivocal, you just need to order which, in which order you listen to the various configuration files, which ones prioritize over which ones, set that as your list and multivocal takes them in and handles the rest for you. And on the CMS side, we're just pushing out configuration files into Firestore and they get read in. One of the other neat things about this is that, and this isn't shown in this in the arrow that goes in the other direction, that multivocal CMS will be able to read from Firestore, but you can also then have multiple windows open into it. So you can, in some cases, see the changes reflected dynamically in other parts of the CMS. And that can get pretty useful in a lot of ways. All right. I talk in a lot of ways about the configuration path and about paths and and so forth and what the environment looks like. And I just kind of want to touch briefly on 
this one path, which illustrates a lot of things about how things are handled. Okay. So the path that we're looking at here um, is how we handle picking the responses for a particular intent or action or whatever. So this is in the handler phase. The default handler will look for this kind of a path. Okay. And it kind of breaks it down into a few parts. The first is config local, which indicates that we're looking at localized values in the configuration. Right. It then looks at the next part of the field. And, and in this case, every place you see a slash, that's kind of similar to what, what we now would think of in JavaScript as question mark dot or a okay. null coalescing parameter reference or whatever the right term is. Yeah. Um, I use slash here because to me, it's a path that we're following yeah. and because I wanted to use dots elsewhere. Because I, I think dots make more sense than anyway. So to me, it's a path. That's why it's kind of divided this way. Um, so first it looks for your locale or language. So it would first say, okay, this came in with ENUS. I'm gonna look for stuff under ENUS. And if I don't find it there, I'm gonna look for stuff under EN. If I don't find it there, I'm gonna look for undefined. Some of this will make a little bit more sense when I'm actually able to show it to you in the CMS. Yep. Um, and then it might say, okay, I'm looking for uh, what I refer to as a target. And while normally the, the two major targets are either response and suffix, which control which part, you know, various parts of the message that are put into the response, um, you can also control all of the you know, possible things that you can do there. So you can say, and I'll show this again when we get to some examples, you can say, um, look for local configuration under this first, and then also look for ones under this first and then take the results of those two and put them into the response. So I can build up a response out of sub-responses in some ways that I built in earlier. And that lets us do some really bizarre stuff. But we control that because that's just a configuration setting somewhere else. Then finally, I'll look for something like the intent, the action or the outtent that we've set in the environment. And if I don't find that, I'll look for something called default. So this might be, for example, I'll look, and I look for outtents first, followed by, in, by actions, followed by intents. So it's kind of getting broader to more specific. And one important thing is that outtents really can have any name that you want. So for example, if I wanted to adopt the convention that things that happen as an error, I might set that with a prefix of error, just so that I can find them all easier. Right. Outtent is just a convention. You can name it whatever you want, though, and it will go looking for it as long as you sent the outtent to that. And then finally, I have the level. And the level, again, refers to a different part of our configuration. This will make a little more sense when I can illustrate it. That says, based on a bunch of other conditions that have already been set in the environment, pick a level. And they can either be numbered levels, by you've, you've given an ordered list of criteria to evaluate, and the first one that matches, matches it. Or you could just give it a template string to evaluate, and it will use that as the level. So for example, one of the things I can say is there are built-in counters. And, and these counters keep track of things like, how many times has this action been called in a row? 
How many times has this action been called in this session? How many times has the user logged in? All of these are just generic counters. Right. So I can say that my level is just the counter. How many times have, they, has, have we encountered this in a row? That just becomes the level. Cool. And the level doesn't need to be there at all. If it's omitted, then it will go look for a version without a level. Or if it doesn't find a match with the level, it goes and looks for one without the level. So there's, again, it kind of takes a whole bunch of things that it knows all, you know, that it, it has. The language, what kind of thing are we trying to build? What intent action or out interview built? What is the level for that in, for all of the possible intents, actions and out and tries to find the best fit. And if it doesn't, move on to the next thing to try and keep trying until either we've run out of things to try and we fall back to a default or we go to a system default. Okay. Well, so two places where I see levels being very handy in combination with um, whatever your, your action and outtent um, intent portion is, is if you want to have multiple fallbacks. So if they, if it's something we'd call that unhandled on, on the Alexa yes. side of things, but you, you say something that, that that's not, uh, not handled or not, not expected. Um, then you can have a progressive kind of fallback. And the first time you say some one thing, second time you say something else, the third time you, you know, say something like else. The other place I see that. Or the third time you say something else and then bail out. Then bail out. Yeah, exactly. You have different, different things that you might do in each case. Right. But exactly. That is exactly why it was originally, I originally wrote it. Okay. And then the second case that I think about is like, if you're returning back, a list of things, maybe they're, you're querying for a list of products, you could have zero products, one product or multiple products. And they, and you, you know, you wanna give a different message. If there's no products, you wanna say something like, hey, there's no products here. If there's one, then you'll do a single and you'll just tell you tell the name or some information about that one product, or you might give you know more information Whereas if it's multiple, you could give a summary and have them give an opportunity to then pick one to then get to the detail of the specific one. Yep. Um, it will work for that. And in fact, it will work for a whole range of other stuff as well. Yeah. There are other ways to handle, though, the, the zero, one, many. Okay. As part of the, the list of responses, you can also set criteria that each possible response will be valid. So you can set a criteria of number of items is zero, number of items is one, number of items is many. Okay. It's not necessarily the best way to do it. And there are trade-offs in doing it either way, yeah. you know, but, but the option is there in each case. And before I implemented levels, that criteria was the only way to, to do this. Okay. Um, now, you know, I expanded a the other way to handle some of those is for example, if, uh, is, is through an outtent so that I can say, you know, if, if zero results is considered an error condition, I might say, you know, outtent results zero or, you know, error, no results. And that gets handled using a different response completely. Completely. Okay. Now, again, but that's something I would have to set in my handler. Yep. Um, and again, there are, there are trade-offs. 
you know, you, I can, yeah, you get, you've got a number of uh, tools that can be used in various different ways. And you, you, you pick which one, like, like, like is your preference or makes more sense to you, but there are multiple ways to accomplish it. Exactly. Okay. So that's an overview, but that took a lot of time. <laughs> that, that did take a lot of time, but I, I, I understand multivocal um, a lot better. And it kind of helps to, to compare it with some other things that I know and say, okay, well, this is similar to this and, oh, this is a new concept. And so, yeah, nice, nice job on giving us a, uh, a good, good view of multivocal. Thank you. Um, and I think some of it will be a little bit clearer when I can show the, uh, you know, showing you multivocal CMS, because part of the point of the CMS is to make some of these concepts a little bit clearer and easier to understand. Okay. And, and then show you some code about how that would fit in. But I think we're going to push that off to next week. What do you think? Yeah, I think, I think it's, a, it's a good time to, to take a break. And, uh, but we'll be back next week with uh, more multivocal in-depth, uh, part two, um, <laughs> on another episode of Two Voice Devs. Two Voice Devs. See you next week, everybody. See ya.